2: In London, this is The Economist with the pick of our week. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor, and in this podcast, Kiwis as guinea pigs, China's deep roots, and a red card for Egypt's football fans. But first, India's one-man band was our cover line and some prescriptions for Narendra Modi.
0: There is no doubting Mr Modi's conviction that India is about to achieve greatness and he may well be right. Within a generation, it will become the planet's most populous nation. It could be one of the world's three largest economies. And it could wield more influence in international relations than at any time in its history.
2: Yet despite India's success, there are twinges of popular discontent.
0: Surly voters drummed his party out in state elections in Delhi. Some dislike his attention to diplomacy overseas.
2: Too much pointing the spotlight abroad, then, and perhaps too much pointing it at himself.
0: Others are put off by his narcissism, embarrassed that he met America's President Barack Obama wearing a dark suit with all 22 letters of his name stitched over and over into its golden pinstripe.
2: Well, that would make an impression for sure, but Mr Modi is falling into two traps, argues our leader.
0: The first is to think that time is on his side and that big, unpopular decisions can wait.
2: I expect many politicians share that same belief.
0: The second mistake is for Mr Modi to think that he alone can bring about change. If he is to transform his country, India's one-man band needs a new tune.
2: From changing tunes to roaring chants over in our Middle East and Africa section, where an article describes the explosive atmosphere of Egypt's football league.
3: Rivalries between opposing clubs are heated. The league was cancelled in 2012 after a brawl at a match in Portside left 74 dead. Play was suspended the next year too. But the animosity between Egypt's hardcore fans known as ultras and the authorities, who share blame for the Portside violence is even fiercer.
2: That animosity translated into a legal battle last week as the Ultras were banned by a court in Cairo.
3: The case against the Ultras was brought by Mortada Mansour, the chairman of Cairo-based Zamalek SC and a supporter of Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, Egypt's president. Mr Mansour is hated by fans who doused him with urine last year. He calls the Ultras terrorists.
2: Links have been suggested between the fans and the Muslim Brotherhood,
3: though our reporter thought not. While some of the ultras are Islamists, their groups, usually linked to clubs, are not associated with the blacklisted movement.
2: And although accusations of such links abound, it's a game of two halves.
3: If the ultras and the Brotherhood are as bad as the authorities say, then half of Egyptians are terrorists, notes one fan.
2: Meanwhile, China's officials are turning their attention
1: to an even more deep-rooted issue, as explained in our China section this week. Officials have often appeared to care little about the architecture they destroy and the communities they scatter. Oddly, however, they have just as often made strenuous efforts to preserve one beloved feature of the urban landscape – ancient trees. That seems to be blossoming into a healthy bit of intercity competition. The capital Beijing, the scene of some of the most brutish flattening of traditional housing, not a record to be proud of, boasts that it has the most trees over a century old of any Chinese city. More than 40,000, of which more than 6,000 are at least 300 years old. Well, now the city is going to greater lengths to preserve its greenery. In December, it announced plans to switch to a new... Ancient Tree Electronic Identity Card System for the 14,000 specimens under its jurisdiction. People near trees will be able to use smartphones to read information about them relayed by implanted electronic tags. Modern metropolitan tree huggers will be pleased to hear that. And celebrating nature is a theme that
2: will resonate with Europe's Green parties sweeping up support across the north of the continent as our Europe section describes. A sense has developed in the Netherlands, in
4: Europe, in the West, that there is nothing we can do about anything, that this is
2: just the way the world is, explains Jesse Klaver, the man who last week became leader of the Dutch Green Left Party.
4: It's not true. We built this world brick by brick, and what you build yourself, you can change yourself.
2: And how does Mr claver's ebullient outlook translate into actual policy? He abhors
4: tax evasion by multinationals. He favours a minimum income. And he has invited the French economist Thomas Piketty to address Parliament. The Dutch Greens are not alone in their popularity. Across Northern Europe, many Green parties are taking a similar stance, stepping into a radical space left vacant as Social Democrats move to the centre.
2: It could be the heyday for Europe's Green parties then, though the article urges them not to throw caution to the winds. If the Greens shift too far left, that could
4: deny them the option of bargaining with the centre. Shaky economies and high unemployment also pose risks for parties focused on the environment.
2: Food for thought then for the sprouting Greens. One policy many such parties may support is that of a basic income for all, an idea explored in our free exchange column, nestled among the pages of this week's finance section.
0: With cash-strapped governments around the world looking for ways to cut welfare bills and reduce deficits, it might seem an odd time to consider a generous new, universal benefit.
2: Yes, you could say that.
0: Yet the basic income, a guaranteed government payment to all citizens, whatever their private wealth is creeping into the policy agenda. Or to be more accurate, it's been creeping along for a few hundred years. The idea has a long intellectual heritage. In 1797, Thomas Paine, one of America's founders, penned a pamphlet arguing that every person is entitled to share in the returns on the common property of humanity, the earth's land and natural resources.
2: So who supports the idea?
0: The left has usually viewed such policies as a way of beefing up the social safety net and fighting inequality.
2: But it's no longer only a lefty cause.
0: For their part, right-wing advocates of the citizen's income view it as a streamlined replacement for complicated means-tested welfare payments.
2: But the most salient question is, would it work?
0: It is feasible only if it is small and complemented by more targeted anti-poverty measures. Basic income... The clue is in the name.
2: It's hard to know how things will turn out without testing them, of course. And when it's time to test technology, it seems Kiwis
1: make spectacular guinea pigs, as an article in our business section explains. In medicine, trials are conducted on guinea pigs, rats, mice and rabbits. In digital businesses, tests are performed on New Zealanders. Oh, well, lucky them, but why? New Zealand's relative isolation means that if a product needs to be modified significantly to fix faults or make it more appealing to consumers, word of its teething troubles is less likely to spread. Well, that's quite handy, isn't it? But few tech firms like having their test markets publicised. It is in no scientist's interest for the guinea pigs to realise they are being experimented on.
2: From one anthropogenic test to another, the shifting mentalities of humanity were picked apart in a review in our Books and Arts section.
5: The proportion of American teenagers who believe themselves to be very important jumped from 12% in 1950 to 80% in 2005.
1: That's
2: quite a rise in self-importance and it's brought an unprecedented yearning for fame.
5: In a survey in 1976 people ranked being famous 15th out of 16 possible life goals. By 2007, 51% of young people said it was one of their principal ambitions. And not just being famous, being alongside the famous. On a recent multiple-choice quiz, nearly twice as many middle school girls said they would rather be a celebrity's personal assistant than the president of Harvard University.
2: Mm, let me think about that one. Anyway, David Brooks, the book's author, offered an alternative set of values to live by.
5: People need to rediscover that the ultimate joys are moral joys, he says. He offers a series of chapter-length biographies to illustrate this idea. And here's what our reviewer thought. If you want to be reassured that you are special, you will hate this book. But if you like thoughtful polemics, it is worth logging off Facebook to read it.
2: Our obituary this week bade farewell to Anne Barr, an identifier of one
5: of Britain's most distinctive social groups. With their raucous cries, OK, ya, yeah, absolutely, they were hard to ignore. Individuals would be spotted in the Fulham Road, in navy husky and Hermes scarf, knotted on the chin, greeting each other with air kisses on either cheek.
2: Well, you know the sort.
5: Yet the secret rules of this tribe, its rituals and codes, were unanatomized until Anne Barr, as features editor at Harper's and Queen, turned her beady gaze upon them.
2: And so observations of the Sloanes came about.
5: Even their mating was exactly timed. August to November, to make sure the offspring were the ideal age to start in Michaelmas term at their public school.
2: And there was a reason Miss Barr's descriptions were quite so
5: astute. Miss Barr was a Sloan herself. You couldn't miss it when you heard her with her cut-glass vowels and shrieks of laughter. She too was caught up in the seasonal whirl of regattas and hunting, and the perpetual risk of getting completely pissed at all night parties.
2: A perpetual risk for us all. That's okay for me and McElvoy. That was our pick of our week. In London, this is the Economist. <laughs>